0: Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and the, and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob, uh, Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't," they replied. "Until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep." While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his, un- when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet them. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban Laban said to him, "'Just because you are a relative of mine, "'should you work for me for nothing? "'Tell me what your wages should be.' Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, "'I'll work for you seven years "'in return for your, your younger daughter, Rachel.' Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish uh, Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhar to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years.
1: How do you know if someone really cares for you? Surely there's lots of ways, aren't there? This year, uh, Janice and I have been married for 10 years. But back when we first met, the first hint that I saw that Janice cared for me was when she came to watch a game of cricket with me and my friends. My first thought was, wow, I've hit the jackpot, i found a girl that likes cricket. But very quickly it became apparent that that was not the case, because Janice had no idea about cricket. And either she was just very, very lonely, or she cared about me. Now, clearly Janice watching a cricket game with me isn't the only sign that she cares for me. If that were the case, then my marriage would be in a lot of trouble because that was the first and last time Janice watched cricket with me. And so either she doesn't care for me Or she shows her care in other ways, which she does. Don't worry, we're still happily married. Well, today we're considering how we know that someone cares. We're not looking at Jacob because it's really obvious how Jacob cares. He takes on superhuman strength and moves big rocks to show his love for Rachel. Today we're considering the ways that God shows his care for his people. And the thing that we need to see right at the beginning is that there is more than one way that God shows his care for us. And that's important because many of us instinctively believe that the way to know that God cares is when he makes our life better. When our marriages are strong, when our families are healthy, when our career is smooth sailing, when life is good, that's how we know that God cares for us. Now, don't get me wrong, that's certainly one of the ways that God cares for us. He provides for us, doesn't he? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, writes James. There is truth to that. But if we think that making our lives better is the only way that God shows his care for us, then we will miss seeing some of the ways that God shows his love and care the most for us well friends Genesis 29 is a passage that shows us some of the more surprising ways that God shows his love and care for his children so if you've closed your Bibles please open them back up Genesis 29 is where we're looking we're going to consider this part of God's word together and as we do that how about we pray Father God, show us your love and your care. Help us to see a fuller picture of how you relate to us, your people. And with that knowledge, move us to trust you more and more and to love you with our whole hearts. And we ask this for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. If you've just joined us today, we're in episode four of When God Chose a Scumbag. In episode one, Jacob, our scumbag, he took advantage of his brother. Episode two, he stole from his brother and tricked his dad, which led to episode three we saw last week, Jacob running away from his brother who now wants to kill him and having an encounter with God who promises to bless and protect Jacob. Well this week the focus shifts to Jacob's search for a wife. Shortly before he ran away from home, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, told him to go to Haran and find a wife from their clan who lived there. And so chapter 29 begins with Jacob having completed this 900 hundred-kilometer journey from his home in Beersheba, all the way up to Haran. And in verse 1, it says that he arrives at the land of the eastern people. Now, that's not just a geographical reference, because in Genesis, the land of the east is very, very significant. It's symbolic of being away from God. We see it right at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they're banished from God's presence in the garden and they are sent out to the east. When Cain is punished by God for killing his brother, he again is sent out to the east. In Genesis 11, the people that gather together at Babel and try to overrule God, well, they come from the east. In Genesis 13, where Lot separates from Abram, he chooses to go live in Sodom and Gomorrah in the land of the east. In Genesis 25, Abraham hands over all his possessions to his son Isaac, and so that his other sons, born of his concubines, don't sort of interfere with Isaac, he sends them out to the east. In Genesis, the land of the east is like international waters. In international waters, you're away from the authority and protection of the Australian government. In the land of the East, in Genesis, you are, at least symbolically, away from the authority and protection of God. Now, God's authority is not limited geographically. God is everywhere. But in Genesis, there is a very much an idea of being in God's place or being away From God's place. So it's in this land of the East that Jacob begins his search for a wife. It should make you think, oh, this is going to go bad. But at first, it actually goes very well, unusually well. Out of all the wells in this East country, 900 kilometers away from home, Jacob just so happens to come to this well where he just so happens to meet these shepherds who just so happen to know his uncle. And it just so happens that of all the times Jacob could have come to this particular well, he came just as Laban's single and very attractive daughter, Rachel, was also coming to this well. We'll come back to Rachel in just a moment. But first, Jacob does the thing that all foreign tourists do when they come to a faraway country. He complains about the local customs. Problem number 35 with America, no universal health care. Couldn't really hear that, that's all right. In this case, Jacob's complaint is with the lazy shepherds who are just sitting around doing nothing in the middle of the day. The locals try to explain that the reason they're sitting around is because there aren't enough of them yet to move this heavy rock that sits over the opening to the well. But Jacob, he's unsatisfied with that answer. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He flexes his muscles, and with one enormous shove, he moves this rock that cannot be moved by less than three men. And then he proceeds to charm Rachel by drawing water for her sheep. What a man. Now, pause for a second, because if you've been reading through Genesis, this story should actually sound very familiar to you. Now, we picked up just after this, but in Genesis chapter 24, just five chapters earlier, there is a story that reads very similar to this one. We read the story of Abraham sending out one of his servants to go and find a wife for Isaac, Jacob's dad. And their stories are eerily similar. Both Isaac's servant and Jacob head to Haran to find a wife. Both encounter an eligible woman at a well. Both are invited to come stay with Laban. They, they sort of tread the same path. Their stories are so similar. Jacob seems to just be reenacting his father's search for a wife. But it's the similarities that actually make the differences stand out, and there is one really huge difference, one glaring difference between these two stories. Because in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant, he prays to God, he checks with God, he thanks God, he praises God, he keeps referencing God throughout the whole story. When he then retells what's happened to him, he talks about all the things that God has done. But here in Genesis 29, God's not there. Did you notice that? God's not mentioned once in Genesis 29. Jacob is in the land of the east. He's symbolically away from God's presence and power. And throughout this whole story, it seems as though God's just not there. But Genesis 29 shows us the God who cares even when it seems as though he isn't there. Because remember, last week, God has just promised Jacob that he will be with him wherever he goes. And then as Jacob goes far away, God goes with him. We don't see him. Jacob doesn't seem to acknowledge him. He isn't mentioned, but we see his fingerprints all over this story, don't we? Because how is it that Jacob just so happened to go to just the right well and meet just the right people who knew just the right girl? How is it that this weedy little Jacob who liked to stay home and cook found the strength to move a rock that it took three shepherds to move? Clearly God is doing what God does. God is giving him the help that he promised. And the God who keeps his promises with Jacob, even when it seems like he's absent, is the God who keeps his promises to us, even when we don't see him. Just as he did for Jacob, God has promised that he will never leave or forsake you. As Jesus departed this earth, he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now we read those words in Matthew 28, we tend to focus on the go make disciples bit. Put that aside for a moment. The one who died on the cross for us, the one who paid the price for our sins, offered us forgiveness, offers us eternal life, offers us his very self. And then he says, by the way, all authority in the universe belongs to me and I'm with you. And I will remain with you always. Friends, do you see the hugeness of, ...of that promise. The God of the universe, whose power is unmatched, promises to remain with us. And there is nothing in all the world that can possibly get in the way of him doing that. He will keep his promise. Now for Jacob, he promised to give him descendants, which meant the very first thing that he needed was a wife. He wasn't going to have any children by himself... God doesn't promise that to us. And it's important to recognise that, that what God promised Jacob isn't the same thing that He promises us. He doesn't promise you a wife or a husband. He hasn't guaranteed your physical safety. He doesn't promise to bless you with wealth. But what He does promise is so, so much better. Because He promises you a marriage with Him, a relationship with Him. He guarantees our eternal security. He promises to bless you with every spiritual blessing. How do we know that God cares? We know God cares because He keeps His promises to us. But as we move on to verse 15, we see a somewhat surprising way that we know that God cares for Jacob and that we can know that God cares for us too. We can know God cares because he disciplines his children. Now, in the second half of chapter 29, Jacob the deceiver gets a taste of his own medicine. Things start off well. He spends a month with his uncle. Laban gives him the opportunity that he's looking for. He says to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, that's perfect for Jacob because he's got no money, but he wants Rachel and he needs to pay a bride price. He doesn't have the money to do that, but he makes an offer. I'll give you seven years of work in exchange for your daughter, Rachel. Laban accepts, sort of. And in verse 20, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, the seven years are over. Laban doesn't seem in any rush to give his daughter to Jacob. It takes Jacob to sort of get the ball rolling. But eventually, Laban does throw a wedding feast. He invites the whole town. They eat, they drink, they party. And then as darkness descends, the bride is brought out to Jacob with a veil covering her face. Off they go to the honeymoon suite to play Scrabble. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up to find the woman lying next to him is not Rachel, but the less attractive older sister, Leah. Now, Jacob is outraged by this. He demands to speak to the manager. He Finds Laban in verse 25. He says, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And even as those words leave his mouth, you sort of wonder does, does he see it? Why have you deceived me? This is the guy who dressed up like his brother to fool his old blind dad into giving him his blessing. He is the deceiver. He's like the inventor of deception. Now he has been deceived. It gets even better because in verse 26, Laban replies, and the answer is just dripping with irony. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Now, if you kind of take the Hebrew quite literally there, it says, it's not the done thing here to put the younger before the firstborn. You can hear the sting in those words for Jacob, can't you? The younger son who used deception to get ahead of the firstborn is told, that's not how we do things around here. It reminds me of the story of Sir Robert Watson Watt. He's there on the screen. He's a British scientist who invented radar, a tool that would become extremely useful for the British during World War II. Now, after the war, he was recognised for his contribution. He received a knighthood, and eventually he retired to Canada, where one day he went for a drive and got caught speeding by a radar. He wrote a poem about it. He must have a sense of humour because he wrote, Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot. And thus with others I can mention the victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly. But now by some ironic twist it spots the speeding motorist and bites No doubt, with legal wit, the hand that once created it. Just like Sir Robert, Jacob became the victim of his own invention. He had used deception and his father's inability to see to put himself before the firstborn Esau. Now Laban uses deception and Jacob's inability to see to put Leah, the firstborn, before Rachel. The architect of deception is out-deceived by his uncle and as a result, he's made to work for another seven years to pay the bride price for Rachel and ends up with two wives, one that he loves and one that he doesn't. It's a mess and we're going to see more of that mess next week. But you have to wonder how Jacob got to be in such a mess. Now, perhaps he deserved it. He got what was coming to him. But this is the man that God has just promised to bless and protect. Why would God let this happen? Now, either we must conclude that God doesn't care about Jacob, or we see, as the author wants us to see, that God is disciplining Jacob jacob you see god is correcting rebuking training jacob in righteousness the story of jacob is the story of how god chose a scumbag and jacob was so scummy he was a lying cheating stealing little man who cared for no one but himself but still god chose to love and bless him he cares for jacob but he cares for him too much to let him remain a scumbag. He loves Jacob, but he loves him too much to let him remain as he is. Jacob needs to change, and so God disciplines him. He lets Jacob feel the consequences of his deception, doesn't he? He lets him experience the alienation from the family that he caused. He lets him wander in the middle of nowhere with no one and nothing. He lets him experience firsthand what it's like to be deceived. He disciplines Jacob, not because he needs to get even with Jacob, but because he cares. Now, this is one of the the truths of the Bible that's hard for us to, to accept, but God does the same for us. He disciplines his children. And we can know that God cares for us because he disciplines us. He corrects us when we are wayward. He rebukes us when we're disobedient. He trains us to trust him no matter what. And just as he did for Jacob, God uses hardships, trials, injustices to do that. The writer to the Hebrews is addressing people, Christians, who have began to suffer persecution for their faith in Jesus. And in Hebrews 12, he writes this. It says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, we need to be clear here, it's not our job to know exactly how or why God is disciplining us or anyone else. We can't always say that it's because I did this that God is giving me this kind of discipline. And please, please, whatever you do, don't say that to someone else. It is not your job to say it's because you did this that God is making this happen. You you can't know that, and and God's people have done incredible damage by by claiming to know that at times. But you see, what does the author of Hebrews say? It says, endure all hardship as discipline. When there is hardship, trust that God is using that to discipline you, not necessarily telling you off for doing the wrong thing. Discipline is more all-encompassing than that. He is training us to to love Him, to trust Him. And so we can trust that the God who promises to work all things for our good uses even the very worst of things to do that. He cares for you so much that He'll keep doing that. He'll keep growing you, keep testing you, keep training you to make you more and more like His Son. Friends, how do you know that God cares for you? Well, there are lots of ways, but in Genesis 29, we see two. You know God cares because he keeps his promises to you. And his promises to you are full of grace. When life is good, you can know that he cares. But even when you struggle, even when you see injustice, when you face injustice, even when you suffer pain and illness and grief, as we all do, Even when people treat you unfairly, you can know that God cares for you and that He is using those painful experiences to strengthen you, to grow you, to make you more like Him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you care for us, that you care for us as any father cares for his children with the exception that you are, above all, good and always right. Lord, we thank you that you show your care for us through your faithfulness to your promises. That you promise, through the Lord Jesus, to give us forgiveness and life in his name. That you promise to hold us fast until the very end. And Lord, we can know that you care because of your faithfulness to those promises. But Lord, we know that you care for us also because you discipline us. And as hard as it is for us to accept when we are in the midst of it, Lord, would you give us the ability to trust in your discipline? Keep us from getting angry with you. Keep us from giving up on you. But through our hardships, through trials, through suffering, even through persecution, Lord, would you grow us in holiness and righteousness so that we might look more and more like the one who laid down his life for us. Lord, we can't do this ourselves and so we ask by your Spirit to strengthen us, to give us this kind of trust in you. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we ask all these things. Amen.